Okay, Revelation chapter 10. Let's read it together again. Verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding in the unknown and that your spirit would teach us and that our hearts would listen. In Jesus' name, amen. He's 76 years old and he still doesn't know. 25 studio albums, 7 live albums, 74 music videos, 99 hit singles. Not to mention 13 albums in 10 years on a massive 236 song catalog with the Beatles. Paul McCartney still doesn't know. He doesn't know. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but the double A-side single off his most recent studio album, which is called Egypt Station, dropped in June of 2018, and it's a song called I Don't Know. I Don't Know. It begins, I've got crows at my window, dogs at my door. I don't think I can take anymore. What am I doing wrong? I don't know. My brother told me life's not a pain. That was right when it started to rain. Where am I going wrong? I don't know. He said he wrote it as kind of a catharsis during a season, a particularly difficult season of confusion in his life. Now, I'm not concerned so much this morning with what Sir Paul doesn't know, but the truth is, sometimes in life, we just don't know. We don't know why things are taking place the way they are. We don't have the answer, and you know there's only one thing that makes that okay in this world. The revelation of Jesus Christ. When I have the revelation of Jesus, I may not know everything, and I may not have every answer or understand every crow, dog, or rainy season that happens to come along, but I know Jesus. I know Jesus. From an outsider perspective, it's like, well, so what? So you know Jesus. What difference does that make? It makes all the difference in the world and eternity to know Jesus. Jesus said, as quoted in John 17, 3, He's praying to the Father. He says, this is eternal life. This is it. Okay, are you ready? Jot this down. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And John would later write in 1 John 5.20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Notice he doesn't say He's given us understanding so we may know what's going on in our lives. So that we may figure it all out. 
No, He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And that's why, as it all comes together at the end of the Bible, the last book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some approach this book with a closed mentality. Some groups dismiss it, or worse, forbid the study of it completely, which makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, just from a a common, simple-minded perspective, why would God put this book in the Scriptures, particularly at the end of the Scriptures, and say, don't read it? Don't study it. I'm putting it here, but I don't want you to open those pages. Don't want you to think about it. What's the point? Why would he give it in the first place? And I have had this conversation more than once with people who say, oh, I don't study the book of Revelation. Or those who say, well, it's just it's too hard to understand. Why is it there? If not for our feeding. If not for our study. Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. This is the revelation. These things belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. There is nobility in searching the scriptures. There is royalty, if you will, in perusing the Bible, in studying, in seeking to understand, in prayerfully going through what God has given us in His Word. I think about the Bereans. And this example is used often and many times. Acts chapter 17, verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Understand the Bereans that are mentioned there were not even Christians, not yet. They were Jews who searched the Scriptures. Now because of that, there would be a church in Berea. Because of that, there would be followers of Jesus Christ. Because they were a noble-minded people. So while Sir Paul may honestly sing, I don't know, another Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, Things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, oh, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He has given us Revelation. But something very strange happens. Just a few verses here into chapter 10. We are actually kept from knowing something. Which is odd in the book of Revelation. We're divinely and purposefully prevented from understanding. And I hate not knowing. I want to know. 
I wonder if, if Daniel ever felt that way. Back in Daniel chapter 12, you can turn there or just listen. Verse 4, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Says, as, as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Daniel, after receiving massive revelations, if you will, prophecies of the future, and trying to understand as he heard, as Peter would later say, the prophets, man, they, they searched the scriptures to understand the place and the time when all these things would happen. They didn't know. Sometimes they got downloaded information from the Lord and they wrote it down and they shared it and people would say, what does that mean? And the prophet of the Lord would have to say, I don't have a clue. And that's Daniel writing about things that he couldn't understand, couldn't know. And so the Lord says, seal up these, the, the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And in Daniel chapter 13, God explains that. There is no Daniel chapter 13. Why are you even looking at me like that? The response to his plea to understand these events is, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. So Daniel had to go his way without understanding. Go into sleep, go into death without even knowing. But now, in our day... I believe and it's clear that Daniel's prophecies are unsealed. That is on full historical display. And others are unlocked and are unlocking this prehistory known as the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see that by studying Daniel, as we've already done, studying Daniel unlocks revelation. Daniel in the Hebrew scriptures is called the little revelation of the big revelation that would come. And so it is important as a prophecy to understand when you're studying the book of Revelation. But what is so strange to me is this book called the Revelation now contains an obfuscation. That is, instead of clarity, suddenly we come into chapter 10 and there's cloudiness. Rather than revealing, there's concealing. Why? Why is this even written down? Why is there even a notion that something is spoken that we are not allowed to hear? Well, before we get there, let's start with what's known. And in looking at these first four verses of chapter 10, there are things that we can understand. First of all, we can understand we've reached the second parenthetical section of the book. Parenthetical, as in a parenthesis, as in an interlude. The first one was chapter 7 which is a brief interlude following chapter 6. It overlays the first six seal judgments of chapter 6. It's happening concurrently, and so we get a little break, a little parenthesis. And then chapter 8 begins with the breaking of the seventh seal that causes that holy, heavenly hush. 
for half an hour. And then, in the same pattern as with the seal judgments, six seal judgments go, and there's an interlude, and then the seventh. In the same way, there are seven trumpet judgments, but six are given, and then we have an interlude. The six trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 9, and then the seventh will come along at the end of chapter 11. So now we're in a break. We're in a pause. We're in an interlude, a selah, if you will, from chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14. And note that these pauses are important because they are for more information. As the chronology of the revelation continues, and as we move forward through the book, there are moments of pause, and those moments are important. By the way, this pattern of six judgments, a pause, and the seventh, which happens with the seals, it happens with the, with the trumpets, it also happens with the bowls, although very briefly, the bowl judgments come along, six devastating judgments that we will see coming up. And then a one-verse interlude between the sixth and the seventh bowl judgment, which is Revelation 16.15, where Jesus breaks in and says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Why does Jesus break in and say that? We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 16. But there continues to be this divinely intentional order Even with the interludes, they follow the pattern that God has set forth in the Revelation. Well, chapter 10 is another pause. I like that. I need a pause every now and then, especially in this study. The juggernaut of judgments can be intense. Have you felt that way a little bit? As we go through, I've gotten some feedback. A few people saying, I don't know if I want to go Wednesday night. It's just more judgment and it's getting heavy. And I understand that because I feel that in the study. These heavy things, these these judgments. And yes, the six to seven now, the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments. Massive destruction and death and despair on the earth. And it can be overwhelming to study. How about when it comes? Things hard for us? Things difficult to study these things now? I remind you what I keep trying to get across, that this is real. That these events will happen. These things are going to occur. We can ignore them. We can try to uh, hush them. We can not look at them. But they are going to happen. And this book has been given to us to reveal these truths. But, but sometimes sometimes we need a little break. I even had last Sunday when we talked about bitterness. Of all things, people were so thankful that we were talking about bitterness. <laughs> because it was kind of a break from our, you know, our grinding through revelation, our studying through and seeking to know. And there's so much information that to pause on just a couple of verses last Sunday, there were some people who said, that was so nice to talk about bitterness. <laughs> It's kind of like the Passion of the Christ. Do you remember the movie back in 2004? I've seen it once. (laughs) I own it. I keep wanting to go back and watch it, but I can't bring myself to because it is so brutal. And yet, if you have seen the movie, you know that there are moments in it when it gets to where you almost cannot take watching the the beatings and the thrashings and, and all that's going on and the bloodshed represented of Jesus 
that we all know actually happened. And so we've got this, we've got this emotional attachment to this point in history because we love Jesus so much. And if you watch the movie, you just get to where you almost can't take it anymore. And then there's a pause. It's actually really smart filmmaking. Suddenly there's a break and, and there's a flashback to Jesus in the carpenter's shop and you, and you breathe, you know? There's a moment where he's laughing with Mary or he's walking with the disciples. There's, there's peace in the midst of this brutality and this chaos. Pauses. And, and that's what's happening here in verses 10 and 11. We, we have a pause. John is back on earth. He is watching the terrors unfold of the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments, satanic, demonic in their demeanor. And we studied that on Sunday. The first two of the three woes becomes overwhelming and suddenly we get a pause. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Watch this, clothed with a cloud. The rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun. And his feet like pillars of fire. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus. Is that Jesus? I mean, who is this angel? We'll talk about that on Wednesday night. And he had, I have more fun doing that. I got to tell you. (laughs) And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He's holding a little scroll. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What was the last scroll that we saw? Have we seen a a scroll in the study of Revelation before? And you remember chapter 5. The little lamb slain actually comes up. There's a seven-sealed scroll. And he comes up and takes the scroll out of the Father's hand. And then begins to break those seals in chapter 6. Is this the same book, the same scroll? And some believe it is. Some suggest that that's exactly what's going on, that this strong angel is Jesus, and he's coming up holding the scroll. And I know, at least all indications are, this is not the same scroll. That this is different. You see, that was a scroll, a biblion in the Greek. This is a little scroll, a bibliridion. It's a little one. It's described differently. And we're going to look more into the scroll also on Wednesday night. Wednesday night is going to be big. You might want to be here. But we're going to look at the little scroll more then. And yet note also that this is a little scroll which was open. It's already open. And you might say, well, yeah, because Jesus broke the seals and and opened it. No, listen, the, the, the phrase, a little book which was open, a little scroll which was open, is in the perfect passive tense, meaning it was already open before John first laid eyes on it. He's seeing a book that's open that he hasn't seen before. And open before he's seen it for the first time. A pre-opened book. I mean, it'd have to be discounted on (laughs) Amazon.com. And so we're told this strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, with a rainbow on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars or bellows. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Hmm. So a strong angel of land and sea or surf and turf is standing there. And 
Our attention, however, as mighty as he is and as curious as this little book is, I don't know about you, but my attention is immediately drawn. It's seized by the seven thunders. Thunder does that. You know, you're sitting around the house. Maybe you're having dinner or you're just talking to your wife or your kids and all of a sudden thunder rolls and everybody looks up. Ooh, did you hear that? <laughs> as if we've never heard thunder before. <clears throat> Off in the background we go, oh, storm's coming. Something's going on. In the same way, the seven thunders grab our attention. Now, notice John doesn't say he heard seven thunders. He says, the seven thunders spoke. The, he uses a definite article. This is more than a complete bunch of repetitious booms. And if you know what the seven thunders are, hold your thunder for a minute. John is writing with some degree of Hebrew code. Using a, a terminology that a well-read Jewish person would pick up immediately. They were in Jerusalem, Jesus and, and the disciples. And Philip grabbed Andrew and together they ran up and caught up with Jesus to tell him, Hey, some Greeks are asking to see you. you got to see the story. Turn over to John chapter 12. Back to John chapter 12. I love this about, about Philip. He's always grabbing someone to bring him to Jesus. You know? And so Philip gets Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, the, the two together, they come to Jesus. Hey, some Greeks want to talk to you. Now this is unusual. Okay? Because the, the, the line drawn between Jew and Gentile in the first century, especially in Jerusalem, was pretty indelible. You didn't tend to cross that line. And so they find it interesting these Greeks are literally seeking out Jesus and Philip and Andrew being disciples. There's some recognition there. and They say, hey, can you take us to Jesus? So they go to check with Jesus first. Is this okay? Can we do this? These Greeks want to see you, Lord. In John 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Jesus does this all the time. Have you, have you noticed this? They come up and they just ask a basic question and he's off teaching. And before I began to stop and say, why is he saying what he's saying? I used to just think Jesus was random. Or maybe the writers of scripture were random. Something happens and all of a sudden Jesus is teaching about something over here. It's like, oh, okay, we're, we're in teaching now. He's always intentional. There's a reason why Jesus is saying what he's saying. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. (laughs) I can just see Andrew and Philip going, yeah, yeah. What about the Greeks? I mean, it's good teaching. I appreciate it, Lord. Jot it down, Philip. We'll, we'll study it later. But what about the Greeks? Why are you saying this? Well, first of all, the last thing he says there in verse 26 is, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So implication, they want to serve me, they got to follow. But there's more to this. Why does Jesus react this way? Because these Jesus-seeking Greeks were proof of what Jesus knew. 
That is, the times of the Gentiles were at hand. The times of the Gentiles were almost underway. Jesus had said as much in Luke 21-24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But for this age to get underway, for the times of the Gentiles to happen, Jesus knew He had to die. Jesus, some Greeks are looking for you. And Jesus goes, yep, yep, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He is in full-on recognition. See, His answer is exactly in the moment. He's not just waxing eloquent about some distant thing. He's talking about what is about to take place. And indeed, by the end of the week, Jesus would be dead. Verse 27 Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, he says, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. It thundered. Now, side story, understanding what Jesus' thinking was, what led into that, it's important. But the question I ask in reading the story is when it thundered, why did some people say, it's an angel? What is there in the Jewish mentality that would make them immediately ascribe thunder to an angel? And the reality is, for centuries before Jesus came, the Jewish people referred to thunder as the seven voices of God. So when it thundered, that's where their minds went. Immediately thinking, this is a God thing. This is God speaking, or these are the seven voices of God. Why? Where did they get the idea that thunder was the seven voices of God? Note this, Job chapter 26, verse 14. His mighty thunder, who can understand? Or Job 36, verse 29. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds and the thundering of his pavilion? Job 37, verse 2. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes forth from his mouth. Or Job 37, verse 4. A voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings which his voice, or when his voice is heard. Job 37, verse 5. God thunders his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Job 39, verse 25. God speaks of the thunder of captains and their war cry. And then in Job 40, verse 9, God says, Do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? How many times did Job refer to thunder? I'll give you a hint. It's not six and it's not eight. Seven times in the book of Job, the word thunder is used. Seven times. The thunder, the voice of God thunders seven times in Job. But but wait, 
There's more. Go back to Psalm 29 in your Bibles. Let your Bible fall open to the middle, and the Psalms will be just to the left. Psalm 29. Verse 1. This is great. It's a Psalm of David. Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, and the God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everything says, Glory! The Lord sat as King at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as King forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. And it's called the Psalm of the Seven Thunders because seven times in Psalm 29, you just read it, it says the voice of the Lord. That phrase, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, seven times in that thunder. And so because of Job and because of Psalm 29, the old rabbis, they recognize this is the Psalm of the seven thunders. So for John to write, I heard the seven thunders, the Jewish mind would go, oh, he heard the Lord. Oh, I know what John is talking about. The seven thunders. Wait, there's still more. For centuries also before Jesus came, Psalm 29 was read aloud annually on the first day of a major Jewish feast. The Feast of Shavuot. Pentecost. You know what happened on the first day of Shavuot? There in the first century? Right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His ascension. In fact, just ten days later, Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Remarkable. Seven thunders spoke. What are you saying, Rick? I am saying the seven thunders are the voice of the Spirit of God. When God speaks, He speaks as of with the seven thunders. In the same way we saw in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, and chapter 3 verse 1, and chapter 4 verse 5, and chapter 5 verse 6, again and again John refers to the seven spirits before the throne, which are the Holy Spirit. The complete Spirit of God. Seven spirits before the throne, seven thunders are the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Spirit of God. By the way, on Pentecost, when 
the apostles began speaking in tongues. You know what the real miracle was? People say it was miraculous that they were speaking in other languages, speaking in tongues. It was really more a a miracle of hearing. Because they were speaking, and yet all of the different people gathered there, the different nationalities, were hearing in their own languages everything that was being said. As they were lifting up worship and praise, speaking in tongues, those tongues, it wasn't just that one apostle was speaking one tongue, it was that as this apostle spoke in this tongue, everybody heard and understood in their own tongues. That, that's huge. It's not like someone was just speaking French and all the Frenchmen understood. It was all the languages. The seven thunders. The Holy Spirit of the living God. So, what's happening back in Revelation chapter 10 is the strong angel cries out with a loud voice, bellows like a lion. And in response, the Holy Spirit speaks. As of seven thunders, the seven thunders. Well, John, he's like, oh, this is good. This is good stuff. And he gets ready to write it down. Verse 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up. The things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Hmm. Seal up. (laughs) Lord, need we remind you, it's the revelation. This is not the book of sealing. Seal up. What's going on here? Boy, you know... It's amazing how badly we want to know. And sometimes when we want to know, you know what we do? We start to make stuff up. I want to know, so this must, this must be what God's doing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Until we find out how wrong we were. People read about the seven thunders. And the question of what is it that they said. Well, you know, when God says seal up to the last book in the Bible, we're not going to know. Uh, There are those who say, well, no, the seven thunders represent the seven crusades. Clearly. Oh, the seven thunders. Those are the seven nations that joined the Reformation and departed from Roman Roman Catholicism. Or Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventists claims to know exactly what she taught, exactly what the seven thunders that were sealed up were saying. In fact, I'm pretty sure they've got them printed out at their seminar down at the Best Western. So if you want to go down and check that out, you can do that. (laughs) What do you think, Rick, about the seven thunders and what it really means? Hallelujah, haven't got a clue yet. I don't know. I'm not supposed to know. But doesn't that drive you nuts? No. Actually, it doesn't. Now, I I have made it my life especially for the past 15 years, to know everything the Scriptures teach. And having gone all the way through the Bible and reaching this point, I'll tell you what I've discovered more than anything else, and that's how little I know about what the Scriptures teach. How much more there is. People say, so when you finish Revelation, are you going to round back and go to Genesis? Yeah, why? Because I don't know Genesis. But you taught it. Yeah, but there's so much I don't know. There's so much more to know. But we have made it our business to know the Word of God, and yet these these things are not revealed. These things are sealed. For the first and only time in the book of Revelation, John is told, seal it up. And with that, a curious veil falls 
the apocalypsis suddenly becomes the ablockalypsis. <laughs> I can't see what's being said. I thought that was kind of cool, the ablockalypsis. You like that, Leanne? Yeah. <laughs> suddenly we don't know. Why does he do it? Why does he do this at all? Why does God, the revealer of mysteries, seal this up? Why even mention it at all, really? I mean, it would be nice, Lord, if we, we just don't need to know that part. Cut out the first four verses. Let's just pick up in verse 5. The angel comes and he t- starts talking to John and reveals himself. Good, let's go with that. Why are you even mentioning this, John? Well, because it happened. But John heard this. He can't tell us what he heard, but he heard it. He's just writing down what took place. It's one of the marvelous things about the Bible is God doesn't shy away from what happened. There are some things He wants to hold tight, this being one of them, but it still happened, so John wrote it down because it happened. Yeah, but we don't know, and I need to know. Let me give you two more things to know. And some of this may be hard to hear. In fact, this first one especially. Some things are just not about you. Now, when I say that, I'm saying that to myself. Because I study this, I'm like, I want to know. And then I realize some things are not my business. Some things are just not about me. But I want to know. Sorry. But it's not fair. Oh, well. But, 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 But God owes it to me. Really? What makes us think we have a right to know everything God is doing? How dare He keep something from me? In my vast knowledge and understanding, the position that I hold on this planet, how dare He keep something from my understanding? I mean, is there some great cosmic rule out there that requires full divine disclosure? Has anybody read that? That God owes it to mankind to tell us exactly what's going on at all times. They were sitting in a house in Capernaum. They had just had another apostolic argument over who was the greatest among them. Classy guys. (laughs) So much like us. And Jesus calls them on it. The boys are sitting around. And Jesus points out what greatness really is, why are you having this discussion? And they're all kind of downcast and looking down. And and so John, breaking the awkward silence, changes the subject. Mark chapter 9, verse 38, he goes, Teacher, uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. John. Jesus said in Mark 9, 39, Do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. John, sometimes it's not about you. (laughs) Do you know that this morning at Christ the King in Anacortes, They're talking about Jesus. Come on, man. That's our stuff. (laughs) Do you realize that living word today, somebody might get saved? Oh, man, we're supposed to be doing that. Sometimes not about us. 
Sometimes it's just not about you. Don't worry about the other guy. Don't worry about what God speaks that John hears as the voice thunders, the seven thunders. John John gets to know, well, that's cool. Let it go. Don't worry about what God might be doing with him or with her or with them. I think of Peter. And there are so many great case studies. I actually had to cut this down. There are so many case studies among the apostles of human nature. And, and how we tend to react and respond and do things. Peter's there after that quiet post-resurrection breakfast on the shores of the Galilee. And they're sitting around the fire and Jesus had just called Peter back in that profound moment. You read about it in John 21. He called him back three times asking, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I like you. Do you love me? I really like you, Lord. Do you like me, Peter? Well, you've heard that I like you. And Jesus calls him back. And he indicated to Peter then how the big fisherman was going to die. Gives him some explanation that he's going to glorify God in his death. And you know what Peter wanted to know? After all of that, he looks over at John and says, what about him? What about the other guy? Lord, what about this man? John 21, verse 22, Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what's it to you? You follow me. That's it. Some things are not about me. My job, my task, my calling, follow Jesus. Just follow him. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing, or what everyone else is saying, or whatever else is going on. For goodness sakes, take a day off from Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook. Stop looking at everybody else <laughs> and follow Jesus. That's all you have to do. That's all I have to do. You follow me. The biblical spiritual way of saying this is that there are some things that are just none of your beeswax. <laughs> and that's sanctifying. Just just to realize there are things I don't need to know, I shouldn't know, in fact. It's sanctifying because when I am just following Jesus, when my eyes are on Him, I stop nosing in on how He's working with other people. And I get sanctified. John 21, 23, it's interesting, Jesus, after saying to Peter, if I want Him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow Me. John 21.23, John writes, Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I want Him to remain until I come, what's it to you? And by the way, John did remain until he come, until he came in the Revelation. Prophecy fulfilled. John remained until he saw Jesus in His glory and in His coming exactly as Jesus prophesied some things are just not about you some things are just not about me we tend to be the center of our universe we tend to think that everyone and everything else orbits around us I've told you before 99.999% of the time people are not thinking about you (laughs) so I tend to lean the opposite way but they've got to be talking about me why? Some things are just not about you. Secondly, some things I just don't need to know. And this is even more important. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul says, I know a man who was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Why? 
Why, Paul? Why is a man not permitted to speak? I want to know. I need to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Well, sometimes when the thunderstorms come, it's better not to know why. Sometimes the understanding is more than I need and it's more than I want. This is what I'm saying. Sometimes when God does something, it's actually better not to understand. Which again is the opposite of what tends to happen in our lives, especially when things go in a direction that we don't expect or don't think we want. And we say, I don't understand, Lord. Tell me now. Tell me why. And if He told you then and told you why, it would crush you. Sometimes it's better not to know. And we talk about having an ear to hear. Yes, an ear to hear. But that doesn't always mean understand. And this is, this is difficult teaching because we do want to understand and we talk about understanding. And again, this is the book of Revelation, but there are times when we need not understand. Why? Three reasons. Number one, peace of mind. Peace of mind. Peace of mind versus a stressed out head. Now I told you all, I got off Facebook and then I got on Facebook. And then I got back off Facebook, and I haven't been on since. Why? Because there was stuff I didn't want to know. There was stuff that was stressing me out. Stuff that I could go all the way back to kids in previous former youth groups when I was a youth pastor, posting things that I did not want to know. I didn't need to know, and all it did was stress me out. So do you want peace of mind, or do you want a stressed out head? Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which does what? Surpasses all understanding or comprehension. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because God's peace and peace of mind doesn't always come from understanding. God's peace comes from faith. Faith or understanding. It doesn't come from knowing why. It comes from knowing God. That's where peace comes from. All the answers to all the whys in the world is going to stress you out. Have you been in that place? Have you ever said to God, I don't understand? Why this is happening to me? I don't understand why I have to go through this. Why this accident? Why this illness? Why this bitter circumstance? I'll tell you, peace will not come from knowing. Peace will come from trusting. The peace of God surpasses comprehension. In fact, the more I know, the more stressed my head, as I said. I think about an old Phil Kagey song. There's one line from the song that got into my brain a long, long time ago. This came out in an album in 1990. What my kids will call the olden days. <laughs> and the song is uh, a song called Be In My Heart. And the first line of the chorus, and I sing this in my head from time to time, Be in my heart, be in my head, be in my mind tonight. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, stressed out, thinking about something, wide awake. Some problem, some issue, some event going on. Be in my heart, be in my head, 
be in my mind tonight. And peace comes. I don't just want God to be in my spirit. I want His Spirit to be in my head. I want the peace which surpasses all comprehension. You know, when Jesus was washing the apostles' feet and and Peter objected because Peter didn't know what was really going on. The Lord said, John 13, 7, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand. And then He says this word, Meditauta. You will understand hereafter. You will understand after these things. There are things we're not going to know in this life. There are things no matter how hard you pray or how much you ask or how much you you strive to know, there are things you will never understand until after these things. Until the hereafter. After these things, he says to Peter, you're going to get it. Well, they were on the cusp of the cross, weren't they? Jesus washing their feet. He's going, Peter's going, what's going on? You're not going to understand this now. You'll, you'll understand this later. When? Jesus could have said, Sunday afternoon. Monday. After these things. After the darkest, bloodiest, most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching weekend of their lives. After this. And that so applies right now. After this life is over. After your resurrection and mine, we will understand. And we'll have the ability to handle that understanding at that time. Right now, you may not. 1 Corinthians 13.12, Paul said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Peace of mind versus a stressed out head. And again, I don't know why, I won't always know how, but I can always know who. And that's the deal, that's the way to get to peace. Who? I know Jesus. And that's peace. So peace of mind, secondly, second reason not to know. Position of spirit. Position of spirit. I want to read you another psalm. And this has become one of my favorites of all the Psalms. I'll read the whole thing because it's just three verses. It's Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Notice David writes, My soul is like a weaned child. The Bible is very specific in the difference between soul and spirit. What soul is to spirit, mind is to heart. I have quieted my mind, David says. Like a weaned child. I'm not thinking about things. I'm not stressing over things. And that's the position. The position of spirit versus a prideful heart. I have quieted. I've calmed my mind. I've quieted my spirit, he says. A quiet spirit will still a prideful heart. Prideful heart needs the information. Prideful heart needs to be right. A prideful heart needs to be able to explain every nuance of everything. And have every answer for every question. That's the prideful heart. The prideful heart wants to be in the know. 
the quiet spirit says, Lord, you know, and that's enough. When you're talking with someone about Jesus and they ask you the tough question, and you feel like you've just engaged in a theological conversation and you are out of your depth, I've told you before, what do you do? I don't know about that, but I know Jesus. Let me talk to you about Jesus. I can tell you what Jesus has done in my life. I can tell you what Jesus means to me. I I can tell you everything I know about Him. I don't always know the answers to all these other questions or challenges or, or critiques or theologies. But I know Jesus. And the quiet spirit knows the Lord. Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus is talking about children, how humble they are, children are filthy little sinners. I mean, let's just get it out there. They are. They lie, they cheat, they steal. They're totally self-absorbed. It's all about them. So what in the world could Jesus possibly be meaning when He says, humble yourself like a child? Kids don't have a clue what's going on and they're fine with that. They're in the backseat of the car. You know, Dad's driving and he's watching the road signs and he's concerned about everything going on and he sees that big truck go over into his lane and and he's, you know, taking care of everything and the kids are back there arguing over who's going to have the last bite of burger. (laughs) Jesus says, be like that. Argue over burgers? No, no, no. Don't worry about this. Calm yourself. The humility of a child is just recognizing there are people in charge above me who are bigger than me and they're going to take care of it. So I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to play with my cars. And I'm going to build my Legos. Because I know mom's got dinner. I don't even have to think about dinner. It's taken care of. Be like a child. Like a child, Jesus says, who's humble... And he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, big heads will not fit into the entrance of heaven. It's not going to get in. It's too much overthinking and debating and arguing and doubting and contending. And I've told you before, all the facts on earth will not birth faith. You can know everything. You can have all the answers. And I'm telling you, there are answers here. But we would be remiss if we think that to search the Scriptures, we will have life. No, no, no. no, no. It is these, Jesus says, that testify of Me. We don't search the Scriptures so that we have a better lifestyle and understand the world and know all things. We search the Scriptures that we might know Jesus better. And in knowing Jesus, we have peace, peace of mind. We have the right position of spirit. And we have the purpose of God. That's number three. The purpose of God versus the selfishness of man. I'm reminded again, when I think about God's purpose and what God's doing, what He's up to, that some things I just don't need to know. And that some things are just not about me. So back in Revelation chapter 10, verse 4, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Why? 
Here's the question. To whom are the seven peals of thunder speaking? And I believe the answer is to those on earth at this time. And they'll hear it. It's for them. It is not for us. It's for believers who perhaps there on the planet have gone through all of these horrors and all of these terrors and they're surviving and they're on a very, very thin line. And the seven thunders, boom. What he says, I don't know. But what he says, they need to hear. Or perhaps, perhaps the booming of the seven thunders is yet another final warning to those who are in rebellion on the earth. I don't know. Again, we don't have the answer to that. What I do know is it's not for us, it's for them. It's for another point, another purpose of God. This is for them. John overhears it because it's actually happening. Because all this is really going to come down. God is going to complete all these things. Isaiah 46 verse 9 tells us, Remember the former things long past. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And he has. And from ancient times, the things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. So, you got crows at your window? Dogs at your door? Are you in a rainy season? And you don't think you can take any more? When the thunderstorms roll in your life and you don't understand your key, I'll just give you a one verse key. Those of you who need a sound bite, here it is. Psalm 4610. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's your key. Cease striving and know that I am God. And I don't have to know anything else. All I have to do is know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us this morning. And as we open up, there are already things we want to know in these first few verses. Who is this strong angel? What is this little book? What are these things taking place? Thank You for stopping us in our tracks. Before we head into and try to seek understanding of these other things, thank You for stopping us and showing us what we don't know. Father, there are many things I don't know. There are many things that my brothers and sisters here in this auditorium know that I don't know. Things people know how to do. Thoughts people have I wouldn't understand. Lord, I know You. And truly, Father, that's, that's what we share in this place. We know Jesus. And we want to know Jesus better. So I'm asking again, Lord, as I've asked many times through this study, that You would increase our faith. That You would deepen our trust in Jesus Christ. And whether strong angels are showing up, or thunder is booming, Lord, would You help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Lord, I have brothers and sisters here this morning who struggle because they want every nuance of every question answered before they're willing to step into faith. Lord, all the questions are getting in the way. I pray that there would be the freedom to step into faith and trust You. 
to actually be able to say, like a child could easily say, I don't know what dad's up to, but I trust that he's going to get me there. Oh Lord, help us to trust you more. For those striving for lack of information, for those seeking understanding in hardship or difficulty, Father, I pray the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And teach us all, Lord, just to be people of a simple faith following you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.